Welcome to Power Play. I'm Mike LeCouture. Today, a neighborly summit. Uh, Canada and the United States will continue working with dozens of partner nations to get Ukraine's brave defenders what they need. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is in Ottawa today. He's meeting with the government's top ministers, including Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, in just a few moments. We'll take you there. Global threats and domestic issues are on the agenda. We are going to break it all down for you. Then, stepping up for Haiti. The Asian police needs to be able to handle the gangs, which is not the case at this point. Canada launches an assessment mission as parts of the island nation face gang rule. How much is Canada willing to offer? And a record number of Canadians are using food banks. 1.5 million visits to the food bank in a single month in Canada. Demand for help is soaring as Canadians face record grocery prices and biting inflation. We'll head to food banks in provinces facing some of the highest demand in the country. This is Power Play. Let's get to the players. Now, following the Secretary of State today, from the moment that he touched down in Ottawa to the moment he heads to Montreal tonight is CTV News' parliamentary reporter, Kevin Gallagher. He joins me right now. Thank you for being here, Kevin. A lot to talk about and how they work together as neighbour nations. But did we get any commitments from either side today? Uh, we got a lot of work in progress. I think there's a lot of things moving forward. Of course, we've heard from Secretary of State Antony Blinken uh, that he would like to see some type of international task force that could be created. It's not really clear when that would go in. It's not really clear, um, you know, the type of mandate it would have. Obviously, there has to be a lot of support from the government in Haiti, such as it is, of course, because a lot of the need for this stability is because of the, the gang rule that's mm -hmm. taking part in that country. So I think from uh, heading into this meeting, the State Department was briefing journalists before Blinken left and really played up Canada's ability to be on the ground. Obviously, there's a history of peacekeeping missions in Haiti, RCMP going to Haiti. But at the same time, uh, you know, the question was, well, could Canada potentially lead this task force because the U.S. has said it will not? Today, from Minister Melanie Jolie, uh, she didn't necessarily rule anything out. She didn't make any firm commitments, but did say that she wants Canada to be part of the solution. But uh, has said this multiple times that, you know, Haitians need to be part of this as well. So it's complicated. You know, I, we've spoken to Haitians here as well in the diaspora, Mike. And, you know, there's certainly a lot of people who want foreign powers to go in and stabilize the country. It's in a political, you know, real nightmare right, right now. But there's a lot of Haitians who live in Canada right now that actually really don't trust an involvement of the U.S., Canada, and perhaps European countries or other international powers going in. There's a, a deep distrust because of the history of the country. And so it's a complicated matter. And you could tell today that a lot of the words chosen were because were delicate because of that by both Blinken and Julie. And is that why it's such an assessment mission as opposed to actually going in and helping right now? Right. I mean, Minister Jolie described it as sort of a, a triple crisis going on in Haiti. You know, you have the humanitarian, a health crisis, and this, you know, um, violence that's mm -hmm. going on in the streets. Um, so 
that assessment might be part of Canada's decision. It also is what can Canada contribute at this point? You know, we have our peacekeeping mission in Latvia. We have the support we're giving militarily to Ukraine. So what is realistic right now for Canada to contribute to an international mission? And what does that mission look like? There's certainly been a call from the United Nations, but there hasn't been a Security Council resolution that would directly put, say, a peacekeeping force on the ground. It seems to be a little bit more of an international conglomerate that would go at the request of the Hades government. And so it makes it a little bit more vague, and I think that's part of the the dance that they're doing mm -hmm. right now in terms of figuring out, well, what type of support will be there and what type of support will be supported by Haitians. And that's the key, making sure that it's supported by Haitians. Kevin Gallagher, I appreciate you coming in for this one. I really appreciate it. So here's the question. How much help can our country really offer Haiti? And what more is Canada willing to do in Ukraine? Well, let's get some answers. Joining me right now is the Parliamentary Secretary to the Minister of Foreign Affairs, Rob Oliphant. Thank you so much for being here. Let's start with Haiti. We're just hearing from Kevin. So why just this sort of fact-finding delegation? Is it because, as Kevin was just mentioning, that it is such a multi-layered issue there that we have to figure it out first on the ground? Uh, two things. It is complex and multi-layered, but also Canada has a long and rich history with Haiti. Haiti is a friend and neighbor, and Haitian Canadians are friends and neighbors of us all, and so we care. But we're also wanting to do this very carefully, mm -hmm. and I think there's three things that are typically Canadian about our approach. One would be Let's find out the facts. Let's assess the situation. Let's look at the humanitarian and security needs before we act again. This, is, this would be an important thing to do. And that's typically Canadian. Let's get our facts right. Mm -hmm. Let's get them from being on the ground. That's why officials are there now. There's a delegation there uh, looking, listening, and we'll be feeding back information. The second thing, which is typically Canadian, is if there are multilateral uh, activities that are going to go on, we'll be part of them. Uh, we don't know what role there is, but there is, you know, we will always engage multilaterally. That is our preference. We like to, to work with uh, like-minded and allied countries in any situation and find what a role is appropriate for Canada. And uh, I think there would be a third um, uh, thing as well in that we will, um, we will be there for Haiti. We are committed to Haiti. Um, we will continue to work in Haiti. We'll find a way to, to overcome the humanitarian crisis and the security crisis and the health crisis, three crises at the same time. Do we have the bodies to do it? The reason I ask this is because you have the head of the military saying there's a crisis in terms of recruitment. You have the RCMP saying that they are running thin. You also have Association of Police Chiefs saying that there is an issue there with staffing as well. So is there any possibility that you can actually staff any type of mission there? Uh, we're very mindful. I mean, obviously, Canadians know that we are engaged in, in Latvia. Uh, we are engaged in training uh, Ukrainian troops. We are engaged in uh, uh, peace missions in various places in the world. We are. Sorry, we're just going to stop you just for a second. We've got Prime Minister Trudeau meeting with Antony Blinken right now. We'll go to that. ...to uh, counter inflation to support people in difficult times. Uh, but we're engaged side by side around the world. Obviously, Ukraine top of mind as we continue to stand uh, with Ukraine against Russia uh, and standing up for democracies and bringing people from around the world to understand how important it is. Uh, we're standing together on Iran where uh, the courageous women standing up against this murderous regime are inspiring but uh, uh, also challenging us to do more to support them. 
uh, we're going to be talking a lot about Haiti, where the situation is heartbreaking, uh, where there's uh, much that we can do, but we're uh, uh, busy engaging very much with local and regional partners to make sure uh, that it is uh, done right. And uh, in the coming weeks, we'll be uh, seeing each other quite a bit over in Asia as Indeed. we uh, uh, deepen uh, the work that we're doing as fellow Pacific nations uh, in the Indo-Pacific, uh, as we meet at the G20, at the, uh, at the APEX summit and various other summits where uh, Canada and the United States continue to work side by side on big issues uh, for the benefit of our citizens, but also for uh, prosperity, stability, and better opportunities for people around the world. I am pleased to be welcoming Anthony Blinken here in Ottawa. Yes, we will be having a conversation about the work that we are doing together for our citizens, but also the work that we are doing across the globe, whether that's in Ukraine or Haiti or other places. So we stand with Ukrainians against the Russians. We would also be looking at Iran and the courageous women that are standing up to a murderous and irresponsible government. But of course, we're also going to discuss Haiti. It's heartbreaking what is happening in that country, and there is work to be done together and with our regional and local partners as well to restore stability and prosperity for that beautiful country. In the coming weeks, we will also be meeting in Asia. We'll be meeting with other Indo-Pacific countries as well. Partners such as Canada and the U.S. who are allies will commit to increase prosperity and stability across the world. There are many other things that we'll be discussing over that time. To be with, uh, with the Prime Minister, grateful for the, uh, the time and also grateful for the conversation that I know we're going to have. We had uh, Melanie and I had um, a terrific uh, working session uh, over lunch, and I think everything that the, the Prime Minister uh, just touched on was front and center in our discussions. And I think the bottom line is this. Um, our two countries are the two most integrated countries in the world. And every single day, our people are working together, studying together, visiting together, and that's having a profoundly positive impact uh, on, on both countries. Um, the more uh, integrated we are, the more we're doing together, the stronger our communities uh, and our economies are going to be. Uh, we're building a more and more integrated North America uh, that's going to make, uh, I think, a profound difference in the lives of, uh, of our people. But as the Prime Minister said, we also face challenges together well beyond uh, this uh, hemisphere that we, uh, that we share in the hemisphere itself, uh, but also beyond it. And in looking at those challenges, whether it's uh, the Russian aggression in Ukraine, uh, whether it's what we're seeing on the streets uh, of, uh, of Iran uh, today, whether it's uh, the terrible burden that the people of Haiti are carrying, uh, the thing that gives me confidence and optimism that we can meet the challenges is the fact that we're working so closely together. Uh, I think both of us start from the conviction that uh, not one of the problems that is either having an effect on our own people or that we need to deal with uh, around the world can be solved by any one of us acting alone. Uh, the more we find ways to coordinate, to cooperate, uh, to work together, the more effective we're going to be. And that's the hallmark of what the United States and Canada are doing uh, together. And we're doing this uh, not only in our own hemisphere, not only uh, in Europe when it comes to, um, uh, to Ukraine, but also increasingly in the Indo-Pacific. 
uh, in the Arctic. We're both Indo-Pacific countries. Uh, we're both Arctic countries. Uh, and we spent some time talking about that because uh, so much of the future in different ways will be written in those places. So for us, having this almost uh, permanent day-in, day-out contact, as well as the opportunity to have these conversations, couldn't be more important. And I have to say, we could not be more grateful to have uh, a partner in Canada. Thank you. Thank you so much. So that was U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau on Parliament Hill having a bilateral photo op there and a few words. We'll return to Rob Oliphant here, the Parliamentary Secretary for the Minister of Foreign Affairs. I just want to pick up on something that Prime Minister Justin Trudeau there said to um, the Secretary of State. Meeting at the G20, the G20 coming up in Bali, Indonesia, Russia's part of the G20. What role does Canada have there? What will Canada do? What is the plan in terms of going and approaching Russia? Because in the past, Canada has been very good at trying to peace, uh, you know, uh, peace broker. Is there any role for Canada to actually go to Russia and try and have a conversation about this? I would say we have a, a number of pretty critical uh, international fora coming up with the G7, the uh, APEC, and the uh, uh, G20. All of them engage Canada to, to be at our best and provide leadership and to provide thoughtful consideration. Mm -hmm. uh, when the G20 happens, that will again be what Canada does. I think Canadians know that, that Russia has crossed a line. Uh, that Russia's illegal and, uh, and really barbaric invasion of, of Ukraine has set them outside uh, certain bars. But they'll be in the room. They will be in the room, and uh, Canada will uh, find a way to express our condemnation, as we have at the Human Rights Council, as we have at the UN General uh, Assembly, as we have on every other fora that we have been engaged in. And, and we will continue to do that. Um, we will find a way to make sure that Russia hears that Canada and Canadians um, disagree profoundly um, and, and will stand up for the sovereignty of Ukraine, will stand up for the integrity of Ukraine and for the peace uh, of the Ukrainian people. And we, are, we, are, we will always take every opportunity to make sure that Russia would hear our very strong condemnation. Is that in rallying other allies, doing a walkout, something of that nature? Because the G20 is one of those events where you can't really exclude a member, but you have to show some sort of a sign and you have to send some sort of a message to Putin. I'm not going to predict what will happen, and I'm not going to be there. That's the, uh, the, the, the uh, leadership of our country will be there mm -hmm. uh, doing that. They will make the right decisions to, to send the message. Um, I don't know what that message, um, how that message will be expressed. I know what the message is, and the message is that Russia has crossed a line, and uh, Canadians uh, will no longer tolerate uh, all that, and that's what we're doing. That's why we're assisting Ukraine in, in unprecedented ways, and that's why we are continuing to sanction Russians, to, to ensure that, that no Russian is profiting profiting from the international rules-based order. So we, are, we have laid down a line, and we're doing that with our allies. So everything we do is lock-stop with the Americans, but with the, the, the Brits, with European allies, with others who are of like mind uh, with us. And that's, that's, what we're, that's what we're doing. I don't know, I can't predict what will unfold at a G20 meeting. Uh, I'll be watching, but I know that the message will be sent, and, and it, it may not be heard, but it will be sent. Appreciate it. Rob Oliphant, Parliamentary Secretary to the Minister for, Minister for Foreign Affairs. Thank you so much for being in studio with us here. Thank you. Now let's head across the border for the view from the American side. Joining me now is the former U.S. Ambassador to Canada. That was between 2014 and 2017, Bruce Heyman. Ambassador Heyman, thank you so much for taking the time. I wanted to ask you, these 
Types of visits are typically highly scripted with no surprises, but behind the scenes there are frank discussions on key priorities. And we heard from the U.S. and that they're looking for help to run that joint security task force to stabilize Haiti. How much pressure is the United States putting on Canada to lead that? So I, I don't know specifically how much pressure is going behind the scenes, but you've described this accurately because I coordinated Secretary Kerry's visit, the president's visit, Obama, the visit by then uh, Vice President Biden, and many other cabinet-level visits. So these are highly orchestrated, highly structured, negotiated back and forth. So there are no surprises who's sitting at the table, what position they're seated in. And many of the talking points are covered very, very extensively. Now, when you're behind closed doors and the door's shut, it gives you an opportunity to have some frank conversations about things that concern you. And I've seen that live and in person with the prime minister when he was talking about softwood lumber with uh, President Obama. And he spoke about it very directly. And it wouldn't surprise me at all if some very frank conversations were taking place about issues that are either of concern to either side or uh, concerned around the world. And we talked about Haiti. We've talked about Iran. You have Ukraine. You have the Pacific where, and the G20 meeting. There's so many things to talk about. Uh, and uh, I'm sure they're covering a very large list. I want to drill down a little bit on Haiti. Canada is sending that delegation to carry out consultations. Do you see this as a first step towards leading that task force, in your opinion? You know, it, again, it's hard to say. I think the Canadians have to first decide whether they want to lead and not wait around to be asked. If they want to lead, they should raise their hand and say, we want to lead, Let, give me the ball and I'll run with it and we'll take on significant responsibility. But that being said, this is not, nobody should think of this because it's a small half an island here that this is an easy task. This is a very complicated, very difficult situation. And the foreign minister described it well today, Minister Jolie, when in her questioning, this is a problem at the political level, at the economic level, at the social level. There are so many issues here that need to be tackled that that, you know, the difficulty of this mission, whoever takes it on, is quite, quite large. Canada and the U.S. really on the same page when it comes to helping Ukraine in the war against Russia. But there's a diplomatic battle that's ramping up for the G20 meeting. I was just speaking about it with the parliamentary secretary. U.S. President Joe Biden has said that he has no intention of sitting down with the Russian president, Vladimir Putin, at the summit in Bali, Indonesia. What does that do to this economic summit? Because it is a big one. Yeah, think of, a, think of the G8 and now the G7. I mean, the leading nations of the world at the top end of that G20 made a decision not to have Russia at the table. And so, you know, uh, at least isolating Russia during the G20, that should be the minimum here. Uh, their behaviors of killing women and children and and we've seen the uh, what I think are equivalent of war crimes taking place in many of the communities that they've occupied, that there's a price to pay. And you shouldn't honor and respect them on the world stage in any way, shape or form. And I think the G20 will be an interesting and difficult period of time for a number of diplomats because the Russians are going to want to, you know, be seen as equals on the stage here. 
and I think that we have to work very hard to make sure that they're isolated at that conference. I just want to quickly turn to a domestic issue, specifically the border. Democratic Congressman Brian Higgins from New York wrote a letter to Secretary Blinken saying the U.S. must lift its border restrictions now, kind of mirroring what Canada did. Do you agree that it's time? Look, there, when I traveled Canada and we talked about the priorities, I did not fully appreciate when I first landed how important that the border was to everybody, business people, uh, families on both sides of the border. They, you know, 400,000 people cross our border pre-COVID every single day. Almost $2 billion worth of trade takes place on this border. 120 border crossings. Um, and so the functioning of the border is an incredibly important part of our existence next to each other. It's important socially. It's important for families. It's important for business. And from my perspective, there is very little risk from a Canadian side of the border with the United States, albeit after 9-11, things changed quite a bit. Um, and so I was a huge promoter of the Nexus program, of expanding pre-clearance in the airports, and really trying to promote an easy, what Canadians call a thinner border between the U.S. and Canada. So to that end, is it time to remove the restrictions that we're seeing for Canadians going to the U.S.? Look, I, I, I think that, in my opinion, that there's very little risk uh, from having Canadians come into the U.S. We do have a policy, though, in the U.S. where we think of one border. And so the way we think of our border is with Canada and with Mexico. And so we have sets of regulations and approaches. If it were up to me, I would be promoting separating that on a number of issues and looking at Canada very differently uh, than we obviously look at the Mexican side of our border and treat it differently. But we had different opening and closings that took place uh, during COVID between Canada and the U.S., partly because the U.S. was thinking about both the Mexican side and the, and the Canadian side. And so, look, I'm a promoter of, on a personal basis, of having as easy a border with Canada as we possibly can have. Uh, but I don't represent the government here. And so if, if asked, yes, we should make it as easy as possible for Canadians and Americans to travel across our shared border. Former U.S. Ambassador to Canada, Bruce Heyman, thanks so much for joining us today. It's a pleasure. Be well, everyone. You too. Coming up, a hunger crisis in Canada. A new report is finding visits to food banks in this country are at a record high. So how are food banks dealing with the surge in demand? We're joined by the Quebec and Alberta Provincial Food Bank Associations next on Power Play. The member would have Canadians believe that they've never had it so good. Yes. Well, if that were true, then we wouldn't have 1.5 million visits to the food bank in a single month in Canada. Mr. Speaker, there's a very clear difference on this side of the House in terms of what we are doing to support Canadians. Since we were elected in 2015, Mr. Speaker, 1.3 million Canadians have been lifted out of poverty, and that includes over 450,000 children, here. Mr. Speaker. 
A new sobering report from Food Banks Canada is shining a light on the growing food crisis in this country. Their Hunger Count 2020 report found 1.5 million people used a food bank this March. That number went up 15 percent from 2021. Almost half of those people visiting food banks were single-person households. Alberta saw the biggest jump in food bank visits from its pre-pandemic levels. It went up 73 percent from 2019, while Quebec saw the most visits to a food bank in March of 2020, nearly 500,000 visits that month alone. For more on this pressing hunger crisis, let's bring in representatives from two provincial food bank associations, Véronique Beaulieu-Fowler. She is the director of the Philanthropic Development for Food Banks of Ken of Quebec and Ariana Scott. She's the CEO of Food Banks Alberta. Welcome to both. Ariana, let's start with you. Your province saw the highest jump in food bank visits, 73% jump from 2019 to 2022. What are you seeing on the ground in Alberta? Uh, I think we're seeing exactly that, and we liken it to a natural disaster. We're currently experiencing crisis-level food insecurity within this province, and our food banks are struggling to keep up with that demand simply because the cost of food has gone up, donors are turning into clients, and more and more people are arriving at our doors. Is there something happening specifically in Alberta, though, that, that is speaking to this jump? I think um, there's some interesting statistics coming out of Alberta. Um, we're trending away from the national numbers as far as the number of food bank users who own homes. So we currently are seeing about 11% of food bank users are homeowners. And we have one of the highest numbers and definitely trending away from national numbers as far as the number of people using food banks who are employed. And what that tells us is that um, while people may be going back to work and unemployment rates may be dropping, the employment that they're securing is not paying enough to be able to cover the cost of living in this province. Veronique, in March of 2022, Quebec saw the most visits to all food banks out of all of the provinces. What is the reason behind that in your mind? Well, we call it the perfect storm. We're really at a moment where we see pandemic, um, the impact of the pandemic on, has had on people and has had on, you know, how, how they can, their cost of living and everything. And now we're adding inflation and we're noticing it even since March that more and more people have to rely on food banks because they've exhausted all other solutions. Um, you know, people don't come to food banks as a first resort they come to food banks after tra having tried so many other solutions and we're highly concerned so we have you know almost 500,000 visits to food banks in Quebec but there are other programs that we're also looking at that provide food assistance to people who most need it we're looking at 2.2 million services rendered in March that's huge for us that's a, a huge increase of 20 percent uh, compared to the last year Veronique, uh, Ariana was mentioning that donors are now become clients, becoming clients. I mean, how much is the inflation crisis squeezing donations that you depend so dearly on for providing for those clients? We're really struggling. Our warehouses are emptying uh, at a really quick and really rapid rate. And it, it's highly concerning for us because we know that this is only the beginning and we will have to, you know, like Ariana mentioned, uh, 
be be helping even more people as the crisis continues. Now, Ariana, the government did put out this historic aid package. They did it over the course of the pandemic, but now those have actually dried up and are being replaced with targeted supports. Are they meeting the needs out there that you're seeing amongst your clients? No, you know, I think that the supports that were put out during the pandemic certainly showed that social programming for individuals and families and, and social supports for them from the government definitely have an impact and a positive impact because um, during the pandemic, there was a period in time when CERB first came out and, and other supports like that, that food banks actually saw a stabilization, if not a decrease in usage for a brief period of time. But with the ending of those programs, you're now seeing more and more families um, and, and individuals utilizing our services. Um, and it just goes to show that so many of our social programs haven't kept up with inflation. Um, and so things like pensions and provincial disability benefits really need to be um, reformed and, and re-indexed to be able to bring people to a sustainable income level when they're relying on those social supports. And I, I think the pandemic supports were a good example of how those supports, if you bring them to an appropriate level, can really help people um, find some sustainability and some stability in their life and being able to take care of themselves. Veronique, it sounded like you were saying as we're heading towards the holiday season, uh, food banks are going to be reaching a breaking point because of the drying up, basically, of donations. Is there anything that the government can do to specific, specifically help food banks now, either you know, give more help with supply chains or even just money to food banks? We definitely need support to um, purchase food right now. We're at the point where we don't have a choice to purchase food um, to be able to answer demand. Um, they have put in some packages on the national and provincial level. There, were some, there was some money that was injected, but we definitely need support on the longer term. Uh, but as Ariana mentioned, for the long term, what we really need is to uh, bring up people's incomes, which will allow them to, uh, you know, for the issues with um, increased cost of living. Veronique Beaulieu-Fowler, Ariana Scott, thank you both so much for being here. Really appreciate it. Here is some other news you need to know right now. A Saskatchewan MLA says he made a mistake inviting a convicted killer to the legislature for the throne speech. Former cabinet minister Colin Thatcher served more than two decades in prison for the first-degree murder of his ex-wife. He was released in 2006 and continues to proclaim his innocence. MLA Lyle Stewart says Thatcher is a constituent and a longtime friend. Looking back, Stewart says inviting Thatcher was, quote, an error in judgment. Saskatchewan Premier Scott Moe also condemned it today. The MLAs, uh, they have an invitation list that they're uh, provided uh, from the Legislative Assembly and, and uh, they, they conduct themselves with uh, inviting, you know, constituents that they that they choose to invite. Uh, as I said, um, this M this MLA uh, Lyle Stewart has uh, in invited uh, this individual to the throne speech yesterday. Um, I would I would have done things differently. Today, the head of the Ontario Provincial Police told the Emergencies Act inquiry that his force could have done more to support Ottawa police as protesters took over the downtown core last February. We could have amassed additional resources if we're required. We could have contributed to contingency plans 
uh, and we could have just offered some advice and guidance if it was appropriate. Uh, being mindful that Ottawa Police Service has always been very highly regarded and respected for its ability to manage protests, lawful and otherwise. And in fact, as a sergeant, I was deployed to Ottawa as a member of a public order unit and it experienced firsthand Ottawa's ability to not only plan for events, but to manage those events. So far this week, the inquiry has heard from a number of police witnesses. Tomorrow will be a one to watch as former Ottawa Police Chief Peter Slowly will testify. He resigned over his handling of the convoy. And tragedy in Manitoba where four children have died after a fire erupted at a home in Thompson. That's about 760 kilometers north of Winnipeg. Two adults made it out of the basement and a 13-year-old girl climbed out of a second floor window. They were taken to hospital with non-life-threatening injuries. RCMP says a 10-year-old girl and three boys, aged 9, 7 and 4, died of their injuries. Well, still to come on Power Play, U.S. Secretary of State has come to Canada with global tensions taking center stage. How do Canada and the U.S. stay on the same page? Canada-U.S. relations expert Scotty Greenwood joins us next. Stay right there. Canada and the United States share a special, unique relationship. Of course, our two countries are bound by geography and history. But as we see elsewhere in the world, being neighbors does not guarantee being allies. It speaks, our own collaboration, speaks to the closest of the Canadian-US uh, relationship uh, and the ground that we had to cover today. Um, and as I said, that'll continue. There's so much ground, it just speaks to both the breadth of that relationship as well as the depth of the collaboration that we have. Quite the love in there. That was just part of the joint media availability earlier with U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken and Canadian Foreign Affairs Minister Melanie Jolie. Blinken's first official visit to this country, just 30 hours. But there's no shortage of issues that he's tackling with Canadian counterparts. There's help for Ukraine, migration issues, a plan for the Indo-Pacific region. They've had a lot to talk about, and that gives us a lot to talk about, too. Will Canada be asked to lead that joint security task force to stabilize Haiti? What can the two countries do to rally the rest of the G20 to freeze out Russia? Let's bring in the press gallery to break it all down. We've got the Globe and Mail's Ian Bailey from the Toronto Star, Stephanie Levitz, and our special guest today, Canadian American Business Council CEO Scotty Greenwood. The council is currently working on the nexus dispute. Welcome to you all. Scotty, we're going to start with you. This is a whirlwind visit in Canada, less than 48 hours. How much work can Canada and the U.S. really get done in such a short period of time? You know, there's quite a lot of work that can get done because when the principals meet, that is uh, just the culmination of a lot of work by officials on both sides of the border getting ready. And of course, Sec Minister Jolie was just here in Washington recently and followed up with this trip by Secretary Blinken to Canada. So an awful lot can get done. There are so many issues around the world that we work on together, as well as right here in North America. So actually, I think it's terrific that the Secretary is in Canada today. I'm delighted he'll be in Montreal tomorrow. Critical minerals, as an example, is something that the U.S. and Canada care a lot about. And when the principles get together, it forces action right through the bureaucracies, and that's a very good thing. 
As you mentioned, work together on Haiti, Ukraine as well. Those are some of the international issues. Also, tensions bubbling over things like the nexus dispute at the border and those restrictions that are currently in place on the U.S. side. Can we expect Canada and the U.S. to work effectively together with these issues that continue to sort of bubble below the surface? I sure hope so. You know, um, there's a pretty straightforward solution on nexus. It's not an easy one, but it is at least identified, and that is if to U.S. CBP officers, they'll be able to return uh, to their post at Nexus enrollment. It's it's as straightforward as that. Not that it's easy, uh, but it's doable. So I hope I hope we'll be able to solve solve that one. It's so important to save Nexus. It's in both of our countries' best interest to do so. And I was pleased uh, with the conversation that the minister and the secretary had, or at least the readout I saw of it today. Scott, you froze for a second when you said the solution is so simple, and you said you ended with the solution is so simple. So can you explain what the solution was? Because I don't think any of us got it. Oh, sorry. Not simple, but straightforward. <laughs> Not easy, but straightforward. Right. And the solution is for Canada to give the legal protections to U.S. Customs and Border Patrol officers uh, doing their official duties in Canada. So I'm not saying it's easy, but it is identifiable. It's straightforward. And I'm really pleased that the minister and the secretary talked about it. Um, I hope that Canada will see its way through to solve it. It's so important for both countries. So important. Steph, Kind of controversial, though, for both countries at this point. Why is it so controversial, this issue with the nexus, um, the nexus issue with the border guards? Well, in, in some ways, it's, it's an example of diplomacy sort of breaking down, right? I mean, you, you look at um, the Secretary of State and Melanie Jolie today, and they were so insimpatico about so many other things, you almost expected them to break out into a musical, you know, <laughs> and just start singing their lines together. But then it's interesting, right, because you had these global partnerships, big-picture issues, Haiti, as you mentioned, Ukraine. But when it comes to the nitty-gritty of actually being neighbors, that's not as simple. That's not as easy as putting pretty words on a page and talking about global alliances and partnerships. That's about each side being willing to give a little on something that affects them both. Ian, when it comes to the issues in Haiti, I mean, there certainly seems like there's a lot of hinting and a lot of nudging yes. on the U.S. trying to push Canada in a direction. Do you think that that continues to sort of go below the surface, or, or is it really sort of overt at this point? Well, it's sort of some aspect of it is definitely overt, and I suppose behind the scenes, perhaps uh, as we speak, uh, the Secretary is with the Prime Minister, they'll be having dinner tonight. Perhaps there there'll be more pushing on some other aspects of it. It certainly sounded today, listening to what uh, the, the Foreign Affairs Minister said and what the secretary said that there's no breakthrough coming on this subject uh, this week before the secretary leaves tomorrow uh, to return to Washington no breakthrough right now but perhaps you know this has to work its way along perhaps there'll be sideline conversation on this when the prime minister meets president in future meetings um, and sort of bring this to some kind of solution but clearly given what's going on in Haiti there's some urgency to, to dealing with this matter yeah. Uh, Scotty, I want to bring you back here, especially on the, the, the nexus and the border issue. But can that question of nexus really be taken care of when you have the U.S. that continues to have border restrictions that Canada doesn't have for travelers? I think so. I hope so. Those are two different issues, right? Um, and uh, they should be solved. I think uh, in the case of nexus enrollment centers, you know, the U.S. has reopened its nexus enrollment centers and Canada hasn't. And uh, the reason Canada hasn't is because it won't provide the protections that the U.S. officers need. So that, again, it's not easy, but it is straightforward. On the um, entrance into the United States, uh, this is one that, that Canada has been asking for for a long time. And it is an example of how asynchronous our border policy has become. So it really would be 
uh, beneficial it would behoove all of us to get back to a place like we were in the good old days of the Smart Border Accords, where Canada and the United States worked on border policy together. That's what benefits us. That's what the model for the world is. And I hope we can get there. I just wanted to go back to Haiti for a second, Steph. When you consider the shortages that we have in the military, RCMP, even police forces, how much can Canada really step up here in terms of providing personnel? I don't think much. I mean, it's, it's a question of reallocating resources from other things. You think about it, you know, the Defense Department right now is in the midst of its own policy review, trying to figure out what defense policy looks like in Canada. For this country, Melanie Jolie alluded today to the Indo-Pacific um, strategy document that's going to be coming up in a couple of weeks. That's going to need to have a, def a defense component to it. We don't have a lot of nimbleness right now into our armed forces. We don't have a lot of readiness in our armed forces, such as it is to respond even to domestic emergencies. So to commit ourselves to yet another international mission, um, you know, I, I was taken today by Melanie Jolie talking about things more like sanctions and more, you know, other ways to sort of bring some more stability to Haiti. And maybe it, we're getting to a point where we can't offer, we can't be that military player we used to be. We just don't have the bodies. And is it the type of thing where it, it, we have to sort of under-promise and potentially meet or over-deliver? Well, it, it would be, a, you know, I, I think Stephanie's uh, correct in everything she's saying, but it would be a, quite a blow to Canada to have to sort of say on Haiti that, well, we can't do anything, move on, or we, we have to be limited in what we can do. Um, maybe that is something that uh, the Foreign Affairs Minister and this government doesn't want to do, but... Um, because of the community here and our, and our previous uh, commitments? Because of the community, because of Canada's role as a, as a, you know, a major international partner and party to these discussions. But, but Stephanie's right. I mean, you know, we're dealing with a lot of things. The, the armed forces and those resources are being tested. So it may end up being a really interesting challenge for the government. And something they're going to have to try and figure out relatively exactly. soon. Yes. Canadian American Business Council CEO Scotty Greenwood, thank you so much for joining us. Stephanie and Ian, you. you guys will be sticking around. Coming up, we're going to be talking about this with Stephanie and Ian. There's a new trend on Parliament Hill. Conservative leader Pierre Polyev not holding media conferences. How does that impact the media coverage of the new Conservative leader? Our press gallery panel returns to dig into that subject. Is Pierre Polyev missing in action? The new Conservative leader hasn't taken questions from the parliamentary journalists for more than 40 days. We know that because press gallery panelist Ian Bailey did the math. He did it this morning in an article. Now, the last time Polyev did a media scrum on the Hill with reporters was September the 13th. Not a lucky number for him. He had a dust-up with Global News reporter David Aiken. Aiken would later apologize, but opportunities to scrum with the leader have been few and far between ever since. Polyev has done some interviews, but they've been rare. So why isn't the leader of the official opposition speaking to the parliamentary press gallery? Let's bring back our press gallery to weigh in. Globe and Mail's Ian Bailey, Toronto Star's Stephanie Levitz. Nice to have you both back. Ian, let's start with you. You did the math. It wasn't hard, if you don't mind me saying, 40 no, days. Math, yeah. I mean, it, why has it been that long for him? Well, you know, uh, Pierre Polyev said during the leadership race that he had a view that he could get his message out through the social media challenge, channels that he's developed as an MP for a number of years. He's, he's been quite good at it. He has a, a number of... Um a number of followers and all the key social media uh, channels. So um, he's just clearly decided that this is what he's going to do. He's going to rely on social media and um, 
you know, dealing with uh, some, uh, you know, off-the-hill reporters to try and get his points out. I, you know, I think a point's worth making here. I've covered politics in three provinces, Newfoundland, Ontario, and British Columbia, and certainly the norm in legislatures there uh, is that opposition politicians in particular seek out the opportunity to clamor sort of, for it, clamor to sort of get their message out, to sort of, uh, sort of have a voice in the discussion of issues. Now, um, you know, here Mr. Polyev has decided he's not interested in doing that. No, it's a free country. He can certainly do that. But it's, uh, it's very unusual. It's, it's really unusual that, um, um, certainly in Canadian politics, that a, an opposition leader doesn't want to be part of the conversation, and especially here. Part of the math as well is that there have been many days in recent weeks where all of the other party leaders, including the Prime Minister, as recently as yesterday, were taking questions from the media. Jagmeet Singh's holding news conferences. The bloc leader, Yves Blanchette, is also holding news conferences. And the prime minister at caucus or cabinet is stopping, as yesterday at cabinet, to, to chat. You know, not to take a dozen questions, but certainly to take a, you know, three or four, five questions on issues of the day. So it's a very unusual situation that, uh, that Mr. Polyev's in right now by his own I presume his own decision. Steph, you were at that press conference, and it seemed like it wasn't going to be a press conference at the beginning of it, from everything that I've talked to you about it and you know other reporters there. It was going to be a statement, uh, and really, you know, David Aiken jumping in there and asking whether or not he was going to be taking questions was about that. Will you be taking questions? Do you think, as a result of that, that we're not going to see Pierre Polyev speak to the parliamentary press gallery as a result? I can't presume to know anything about Pierre Polyev's communication strategy, primarily because I think it's Pierre Polyev who's in charge of his communication strategy. And I think, you know, the party has now hired a director of communications for the official leader's opposition office. They've also hired a new director of communications for the party. I think they're in a position of figuring out what their comm strategy is. But at the end of the day, it is up to Mr. Polyev to make the choice. He can either walk by the cameras and stop and talk, or he can't. The challenge, I think, just to pick up on a point that Ian made, becomes when that his approach becomes the trickle-down approach for all of caucus. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the government, um, the role of the official opposition is to hold the government to account. And the government right now is making all sorts of decisions. Let's just take the meeting today between Blinken and Jolie that may have repercussions. And to be able to challenge those decisions is part of the opposition's job. And so when we're all standing there outside of caucus, and we're not asking just to speak to Mr. Polyev, but we're also asking to speak to the finance critic, the foreign affairs critic, the housing critic, and now it seems those people aren't coming either, then we have to wonder what's going on. I mean, does the opposition, it, they can have their own strategy about how they want to hold things. I mean, yesterday, you know, we have new, an interest rate hike out from the Bank of Canada. We know that the Conservatives have been going very hard on this. Uh, they didn't put anybody up in front of the media to talk about it. The messaging coming from their office was, well, just watch question period. Pierre Polyev off the top. You know, makes his comments to Justin Trudeau, snags a clip, goes on social media. He's got hundreds of views in a matter of seconds. And he feels as though he's gotten his message out. All right. But there are questions that need to be asked by the government. There's things to need to be challenged. And some of that work is done through the media as well. And, you know, I often laugh a bit because you see conservatives and other opposition parties, they'll, they'll hammer the government on stuff. And how will they do that? They'll link to stories in the media. Right. So on the one hand, they disdain us and don't want to talk to us. And on the other, use our work, use our work to make their point. And I always find that that's a bit of a funny tension there. 
that I they haven't want, yet reconciled. And Ian, on the point of question period, I mean, of all people, you know, Polyev would know that, yeah, that's a good forum, but at the same time, that doesn't get you elected. Um, you know, a few Canadians are actually watching question period. So is it really bypass the media by speaking directly to my followers on social media? Well, uh, on question period, you know, Thomas Mulcair was a superb questioner in question period. We still remember his, his sharp questions, mm. uh, but it, it didn't get him and get the NDP into power, although, you know, they were doing relatively well. Um, you know, do many Canadians watch Question Period? I, I don't know. Perhaps we do. Not. We do, obviously, because <laughs> we're here. But perhaps not many Canadians are taking time out of, you know, dealing with their kids and having their lives to watch Question Period. They watch some of it, but probably not a lot. Um, one other point I'd make is that, you know, it's not an either-or. I mean, uh, opposition politicians don't just speak to the you know, media and their legislatures are here. They, they can do other things. This is just part of the pie. They can d communicate directly with the party, as Mr. Polyev does. They can communicate with, you know, uh, by social media or what. But this, this is part of the dialogue. It's part of the dialogue going on in legislatures across this right. country right now. So... Um, it's, you know, B.C. to Newfoundland and North. I mean, you know, opposition leaders are, you know, communicating with media in legislature. So it's just very strange here that, um, you know, the opposition leader is, you know, sort of like Batman behind Commissioner Gordon, sort of vanishing and here and there. We've got to wrap it, but I just want to take this opportunity to tell Mr. Polyev, seats always open for him right here on Power Play. <laughs> Be happy to speak with him. Unfortunately for today, though, that's our Power Play Day in Politics. Thanks for spending your time with us, everyone. We'll be back here tomorrow. Have a great night.